3: Welcome back to Conversations From Away. My name is Aaron Michael Ray, and we are jumping right back into episode four, part two. At the end of part one of this episode, we left off discussing gentrification and housing discrimination. So let's get right back to it. I did want to ask for everyone, have you ever been a minority in your neighborhood? And if so, what was that like for you?
2: I certainly have uh, here in the South Bronx, Um, but I, that was admittedly, that was one of the reasons that I moved here was that I wanted to have that experience and know what that felt like. Um, I don't know if I ever had been the only white person in a room um, before moving here. It's opened my eyes to a lot of things. Um, I mean, I I grew up in in the city of Chicago, not the suburbs. Um, And so I had a, you know, um, an upbringing that had a lot of—I was around a lot of diversity, but you know, as things often are in the states, you know, there are there are lines that are difficult to cross sometimes, and uh, I kind of made it a point after finishing uh, college. Both Sam and I went to Sarah Lawrence College, which is how we know each other. And after uh, after graduating, um, I was looking for an apartment in New York City, and uh, I came here because I could afford to rent here, and um, it was, it was interesting to me, and, um, I have had a great experience. Um, I, I'm a runner, and, uh, I have often, for years I've been running around the Bronx, all over the Bronx, um, everywhere from, you know, down around Mothaven to, up to Van Cortland Park to East Tremont, like, uh, Westchester Square, like, I go everywhere, and, um, I'm often, you know, Pretty much, you know, the only white person visible for, you know, any number of distance uh, or any amount of distance around me, um, and you know, um, oftentimes like uh, little kids used to run beside me, like they'll you know kind of follow me. Just it's it's fun, you know, for for them and fun for me to like get chased by the by the kids in this very playful way. Um, I've had people, you know, say to me jokingly, you know, say things like, "Hey, it's the running white guy," you know. And uh, like, there's always this really, um, there's always this sort of good naturedness to it. Uh, if anybody has anything uh, negative to think or say to me, uh, not that it hasn't happened, but um, more often than not, that's, that's not the case. Um, pretty, people here have been very welcoming. Uh, and you know, where I live, um, I, I live on Finlay Avenue, uh, just below Claremont Park and uh you know i know most if not many of my neighbors on just on this block and you know people say it's the sort of place where people say hello and passing it's almost like living you know in a small town or in the suburbs you know like people say hello even if you don't know each other you say hi have a nice evening you know and um that's uh and people treat me um probably do treat me a little bit differently uh, i'm sure but um there's overall a, a, a a sense of welcome and, um, and openness, which often I have not found in white neighborhoods. Like where I grew up in Chicago, um, there's, there's more of a, a feeling of coldness. Like, you know, you don't really get to know your neighbors that much. And I, I know a lot of people say the same about, you know, uh, places they've lived in Manhattan, um, that are predominantly white. So, um, anyway, you know, uh, not to like, just painted an an absolutely rosy picture of everything. You know, there are problems, of course, as there are anywhere, but um, my experience here being uh, a rare white person in a non-white neighborhood has been very positive.
0: I'll just add that, shortly after Isaac and I graduated. Um, my first job at a college was at the Bronx Botanical Garden. So I also lived like, I think we lived like five blocks away from each other, but didn't realize it until afterward.
2: Yeah, you were on uh, like 167th.
0: Yeah, exactly. Right?
2: Okay, yeah, I was on 167th.
0: So, so we were right there. I, I just want to add that I also got uh, the most amazing things shouted at me during that time. Uh, people like to shout famous white people at me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I used to get uh, Forrest Gump a lot. You know, yeah. you got
0: Forrest Gump. I got uh, Tony Hawk. Kid Rock. <laughs> I used
2: to Kid get Robert, Robert Plant. Actually, people, <laughs> yeah, because I had a <laughs> lot of hair. One. I
0: had I got Where's Waldo one night. That. <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's great. That is ruthless, and I love that.
5: I lived for for three years in in Quebec, in Canada. And, and i was certainly a, a very visible minority how they call them <laughs> how they called us there le, le, uh, minorite visible. Uh, and i it was both really 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 depressing because of the loneliness that i felt uh, at times um, at the same time it really forced me just as a matter of survival to connect with other people that were going through the same thing, and um, I, we, we weren't that much liked uh, in Quebec City because it's uh, the cradle, cradle of um, Quebec na- nationalism, and and the university professors and and so on and so forth. It 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 it, it wasn't really like too welcoming a place. At the same time, it was, um, you know, commiserating with others and, and making friends with, with native uh, people um, in in Canada and, and with Haitian people and people from all over the Maghreb that lived there. It, I, at the end of the three years, I, I realized that I had like a beautiful, beautiful community around me. And, and so the other thing was that we lived in the main, street of a yeah a gay life and and that was particularly awesome because the bars were open (laughs) it was crazy so that that i liked but at times it was really depressing also because you feel lonely you know particularly if people don't want you there so
3: yeah Yeah, um i feel i so i am originally from San Antonio, Texas, and I, in the neighborhood, I kind of moved around a little, I kind of moved around, I guess, kind of a lot, now that I think about it, but it didn't feel like a lot because we always stayed within the same area, and I would say that, you know, where I was living in particular was predominantly white, and it was... You know, when I like when I was going home, I went home and quarantined when we were shut down from um, the pandemic. I we were already in Texas, and so I just drove to San Antonio where I quarantined for 4 months before coming to New York. And when I was there, you know, there were I just remembered, you know, hearing about the case about Ahmad Arbery and how he was running in his neighborhood and was killed. And you know, I was, I was kind of like in this groove and I was of, you know, just working on my own fitness and everything. And I was running at least like two to three times a week or something like that. And then, you know, that happened. And that was like a real moment for me of like, okay, I can't, I can't get too comfortable even in my own neighborhood. And it was a moment where I just kind of had to really think about like, okay, well, if I, if I really want to go running again and I'm one of the, and our family is one of, you know, the only black families, you know, in our own community, then, you know, I just, I have to be extra careful because I'm a six foot three big black man, you know? And so no matter how many times I smile or how many times like, you know, I, you know, kind of like up that energy and you know present that to people like I still can come off intimidating to most people just because of that and so when you're in a neighborhood as a person of color that is predominantly white you are always thinking about those things and and it does get lonely you know because you're not surrounded by people who look like you or who really understand you like right away so i absolutely relate to that but i also love how all of, for those who have talked about, you know, being a minority in your own neighborhood, that it's all been different experiences. So I am really glad that we were all able to share on that.
2: I, I just want to add that, that that is something that I thought, you know, um, and I believe we talked about this in one of our preliminary, pre- preliminary discussions, that I, I have noted that, uh, you know, wh- my experience being a runner in a predominantly black and Latino community is very different uh, than what it, the opposite would likely be. And uh, I've, I've often thought of that and thought that that is, is very, like how, how would it be to be you know a, a, a young black man running through a white suburb? Uh, the response from my neighbors might not be so friendly as it has been here to me. So, sorry, I just wanted to add that.
5: I have a question uh to go back to the book like very disciplinarian (laughs) so when 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 i read something like like that book and and i look at at the carceral state or the so-called criminal justice problem in a in a place like this here in the south bronx like for me the conclusion is unmistakable and clear the government has been our enemy, it has been the, like before we were screwed up uh, here by by uh, private developers and the type of gentrification that we all know and we were talking about like the people who, who were uh, dumping on this neighborhood and, and screwing us up was the government, was elected officials and city people, you know? And so I I am wondering how that fact can be squared with this leftist belief, you know, that that government will uh, be part of the solution or government mm. can make it right, you know, which which I also think that that that's the way. Like I I I I don't wanna get away from that. But I wonder how how all of you Somehow, you know, if you had that kind of uh, cognitive dissonance, like that, the government is
3: really <laughs> the people who who screw us. Well, I I just remember something we talked about in one of our meetings before this episode was I <laughs> I remember bringing this up and almost kind of like wanting to eat my words when I say this, but at the same time, it is what it is. I remember just saying, you know, a story of racism in America is old news at this point. You know, it's like, because of how this country was already built, you know, any other story, whether it's about this topic of gentrification or housing discrimination, or just any other kind of situation, it somehow comes back to how we're rooted in racism within our government and so i think the people who are saying you know oh well the government is helping us or they're trying to help us i wouldn't be surprised if most of those people were white because the government our american government is has been set up to help white people and white people only so you know i think that's probably why that some i would assume that some people would say that and but i think it can At the same time with that, it can absolutely be changed. I think that, you know, when you have more people, you know, not to get too political, but this is this is at the same time a little bit of a political, you know, discussion. You know, but not to get too political, but you know, I think once we really see those changes within our federal government or local government or state government of like having more people who look like us represent us, then you know, then we'll actually feel like we're being protected.
4: Yeah, because otherwise, I mean, I don't want to get depressing here, but we're talking about major systemic change. Like, we're talking about, uh, again, as someone who has only lived in America the last few years. So I'm still learning all the systems myself, but like it blew my mind, the whole redlining history. And it blows my mind that property taxes fund schools. So that's how you get this incredible disparity between good neighborhoods and other neighborhoods and how people are running around like crazy people trying to get into the good neighborhoods so their kids can go to a decent school. And that all is entirely attached to real estate. And therefore, you've got white enclaves and and lack of, and people getting very upset if if suddenly a Hispanic community are going to infiltrate the school and all of that stuff, which like all of that is really mind boggling to me. And how how do we begin to dismantle so many bad systems? In my opinion,
3: yeah, you're absolutely right about that. The word you used,
1: infiltrate. Was used so many times in the book, quoted in the book, but they were in actual government policies using the word about African Americans or other undesirables infiltrating neighborhoods. And that made my skin crawl. Uh, one of the things we also talked about was I think it was in the book saying, if you are a homeowner, go back and if you can get a hold of your original deed. Of your home and see if it has some of the um, covenants and exclusionary clauses in there that actually say that kind of stuff that, you know, people of color, this house will not be sold to people of color.
3: I was actually just reading about those restric- restricted covenants today uh, from the book and how, you know, there are still deeds out there that say, you know, you cannot sell or resell this house to a black person. You can, or or even Irish people, you know, like there are so many things, so many deeds that are still out there that say that. And I just find that very mind boggling.
1: Yeah, the reason that it really, it really shook me is that, you know, we recently moved out of the city. And so we actually, my my wife and my little guy, uh, bought a house and so, I was like, I would love now to get a hold of the original deed. I have to go to the county to get that and try to read it and see if it has some of those clauses in there. Um, But it also makes me wonder, having moved from where I did into the neighborhood that I'm in now, did I contribute to any of, um, I don't think my move out here would be a gentrification, but did I contribute in any way to housing discrimination because of the school district that we selected for my six-year-old, um, it kind of makes me go, I have a lot of reckoning to deal with and a lot of research, continued, continued research to do.
3: All right, honorary Newfoundlanders, we'll be right back. It's so amazing how with this topic alone that, you know, you and the book has definitely spelled it out in an amazing way of how, you know, you think you really know enough about this topic or gentrification and then when you really dig deeper and deeper and go further back in history, you just see that it is so it all goes back to how it's just rooted within our government to help, you know white people live where they want to live um so that has been very eye-opening about this book and sometimes aaron where they didn't even want to live they were at some
1: in earlier times they were in integrated neighborhoods and then the government forced them apart
2: that's something that you know that it was this book has i'm sorry we keep going back to the book the color of law i'm sorry to keep doing that and i'd be curious to hear you know what sam has to say on all this as well but um uh it, it might be, for, for anyone who, who might be watching this also, it is really fascinating to go back and read a source like this, uh, because it's very easy to just look around and see, you know, that, oh, there are black neighborhoods that are not doing so well and white neighborhoods that are doing pretty well. And, you know, it's it's very it's very easy to just assume that that's, as you said, that that's natural, and um, somebody's, maybe it was Mancho, I can't remember who said it, but this book makes a very convincing argument for, uh, yeah, basically spells it out that this was designed this way, this was made this way by the government during the course of hundreds of years, but especially the uh, the mid 20th century.
0: I think it's important to, to think about why though, right? Uh, why would the government policy Reinforce segregation in the way that it did, um, and and it calls to mind a, a passage in an essay by um, historian Barbara Fields, who's writing about slavery in the U.S. And she says it's it's not like the product of slavery was white supremacy. They didn't we didn't create the system of transatlantic slavery in order to produce white supremacy. White supremacy was a tool to produce cheap cotton. That was the product that was there to make a profit and that the horrible immoral system of transatlantic slavery which had devastating impacts for the entire world was essentially a scheme to make a very cheap commodity which could be sold worldwide so then the question is what was supposed to be the product of racial segregation if that was also a policy of the us government and i would argue that the product was profit from housing and that you know the real estate industry this wouldn't have happened if the real estate industry wasn't interested and able to exploit the difference between what white people could have, what they could profit from, what they could gain equity from, and what uh, people who are excluded from that system, predominantly African-Americans, but also some people we now call white people. Uh, and you know, they, <laughs> there's a lot of profit to be made off of keeping them out of the system, right? The housing costs are actually higher for the people who are excluded from the system. Uh, than they are for the people who buy into it. So I think it's important to show you know, how money is made off of all these things um, as one of the main, if not, not the only, but certainly one of the main explanatory factors for why does the government do this over and over again throughout this history? And then I think that brings it back to the question Moncho asked, which is if the government has been the enemy this whole time, then why would we expect the government to do anything different? It's a perfectly valid question, except who else is gonna do it? Who else has the power to to remake systems right certainly I don't trust the real estate industry to do it I don't trust the market Um, and you know a simplistic way of viewing society is basically you got market you got capital you've got the government the state and you've got us the people labor whatever you want to call us and so it's up to the people to kind of remake the state as the entity that could really change all these things that's my uh, little case for revolution
5: (laughs) (laughs) we the people you see troublemakers everywhere
3: (laughs) but he's making good trouble so I like oh yes
5: yes but Sam sometimes sometimes what I wonder is that so yes like today we can we can see the market or capitalism and the state like and and that's it and I, I I go back to to back in history I'm like so it, it is not that I want that to happen, but but for example, before in history, we had religious life, you know? Like religious as an organizing factor that could give you solace or actually liberate you from certain, you know, crap that was happening. And I, and I wonder if just concentrating in that, I mean, to be fair, you also mentioned that it's us. There is us. So there is capitalism. There is us, and there is the state. Uh, if if we need more imagination, more political imagination, uh, in in terms of of imagining how we are gonna uh, come out of of this predicament, because at at the same time. One of the one of the things that that my my reading and my research uh, has has led me to to see, is how the very as you said the very constitution of of the modern world is predicated in this kind of racism because it was a scheme to sell cheap crap you know and, and to produce it as cheaply as possible, uh, and, and and so our world is defined by that our our. Our ideas of government are defined by that. Uh, the very the, the notion of, of, of uh, our contemporary understanding, for example, of sovereignty and, and, and liberalism and, and democracy as we practice it today um, in what we could recognizably call democracy, all of that came to be much or less at the same time of black, anti-black racism, you know? And so I'm, I, I wonder like, is it possible to really just take over the government and do something really substantial about this? Or do we need to imagine something different as a way, as an energy creator to actually bust uh, the, the, the situation or the, the chains we, we find ourselves in? Like I, long story short, I don't trust the government. I don't trust the market. I don't trust religion. I have a little bit more trust in us, but not too much. So <laughs> I I I always the what it will be like remains to be seen for me.
3: I just feel like everything you said I'm I just can only receive and really kind of I I want to like take it home and just you know, marinate on that, if you will. Sam Macho, I also want to take um, a moment to say how I'm just glad that y'all are here because, you know, your expertise, expertise on all of this is so eye-opening and so amazing for all of us, and especially the viewers who are watching this. Um, so I wanted, I wanted to ask uh, both of you, could y'all tell us more about the work, uh, Sam, that you do for the Com- Community Service Society of New York and Moncho for the South Bronx Unite, and what has been the most rewarding part about the work you do? You can start with Sam. Sure. I, I
0: started uh, this work about six months ago, right in the, the heart of this pandemic um, which is tough and I, I started it, I, I took the position of a friend of mine who died of, of COVID um, in April. So carrying on his legacy is very important to me. Uh, Community Service Society is an organization that has kind of a social service arm that helps people who are in trouble who are in poverty, who are struggling with eviction or uh, trying to expunge their criminal records to get a job and does other kind of important direct service work. My work there is, is in rethinking housing policy and the most rewarding part of it is uh, being a resource to community-based organizations that need the, the skills of someone who can, um, who knows the history of housing policy in the US and in New York City, who can uh, find the data and try to help make the argument for change. So that's been the most rewarding part so far.
5: So yes, I, I, I am a volunteer uh, uh, in South Bronx United. We None of us gets paid. So the, the work that we do, I, I think it transitioned from what I find the, the fun part of protesting and being annoying to those in power, which is what I love to do, you know, disrupting stuff, to actually proposing concrete projects and, uh, and ideas. And so that's where the land trust, uh, the community land trust, uh, uh, you know, factors in. And so we began as a environmental justice uh, organization uh, that now has coagulated, you know, like it's, it's a positive uh, political project uh, around the idea of, of the community land trust. The, there are a few very, very fulfilling uh, uh, occasions, have been uh, many fulfilling occasions to the work that we do. Uh, for example, when, when you are a environmental justice organization, and suddenly, people that uh, neighbors that want support uh, in immigration matters come to you, come to us, and and ask you uh, to to be part of of the network, you know, uh, of of immigration support. Uh, that that was really flattering, and it, it it really made it feel that all the stuff that we've been doing with the environment, like. Like was super extra worth it, and, and and there was another moment when when City Hall realized that the that the cop that murdered Eddie Garner wasn't gonna be charged. South Bronx United got a call from from City Hall asking us uh, to be agents in the pacification of the neighborhood because obviously we're Puerto Rican and black. So they obviously assumed that we're going to blow shit up. I'm sorry. And, and so they called us and, and that was really, really, really also satisfying because obviously the answer was, no, we're not going to do, <laughs> we're not going to do it. But then we also realized like these people are scared. And the fact that they're calling us means that they think that we have power. And so I think that that was uh, also something that that really showed us, you
3: know, that told us, like, yeah, we're doing something right. I love that. Thank you. Thank you both for sharing that. It really, I can't express how much that the work that both of y'all do is so great and it should be celebrated, and I'm just really proud to know both of you. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you for having me. Of course! Uh, For the viewers out there that want to read more on what we've talked about in this episode, um, like we said, a lot of our research has been based off of The Color of Law and uh, by Richard Rothstein. Um, It goes to excruciating detail about how all things our government has tried and still tries to do to segregate America. So very, very eye-opening. Um, and I highly recommend. So at the end of each episode, we always like to shout out a Black-owned organization or business. And this week, we are shouting out the Harlem Candle Company. Nothing feels cozier than these candles from Harlem Candle Company. I selfishly wanted to shout them out i have no ties to them at all or anything i'm just currently obsessed with their candles mainly because they're all based off of all the candles are named after um you know jazz artists like the ellington and the billy holiday like i it's just great that wraps up our episode so thank you to our fabulous come from away panelists for joining me this week and a special thanks to sam and mancho for your knowledge and presence so, thank you all very much and stay safe. Bye. 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 <laughs> all right, honorary Newfoundlanders, thank you so much for tuning in to episode four, part two. A portion of our ad revenue will be going to South Bronx Unite and Community Service Society of New York. We thank you once again for listening. Stay safe out there and we'll see you next time.